waiting for the sidebar. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Bashab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the lauder's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Or the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The New Testament reading is from James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that it may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because no one who doubts is like a w- because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, it blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business." Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The Gospel of our Lord. Will you pray with me, please? If we do not stand firm in our faith, we will not stand at all. Ancient words, true then, and true enough now, and Jesus were asking as the author of our faith, as the perfecter of it, as the pioneer of it, that you might give us miracle grow for the seedlings of our faith, that they might blossom, 
into a thing of beauty where we can stand firm and not be tossed about like waves of the sea. Oh, we need your help. Will you give it? Come Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. We start a new series this week. We're going to look at the book of James, which even though Martin Luther didn't like it, other Christians have. And this series is going to look in a bunch of different ways at a faith that lives. It recognizes because James, the brother of our Lord who authored this epistle, had been reading G.K. Chesterton when he wrote this and noted that, as Chesterton once said, if I were a landlord and I were trying to figure out who would be good tenants for my property, I wouldn't be primarily concerned with their income, but with their beliefs if there were a way to find them out truly. His recognition was that it doesn't matter how much money they have, it depends on what kind of person they are. What are their deepest commitments? Because what anybody believes in the privacy of their own heart will always make it out into the world. Private faith eventually, in some way or another, becomes public. And James hits on that point in a lot of different ways that a faith that is alive is a faith that will be demonstrable, that will be concrete, that will not merely reside in a heart like a secret, but will come out of a life in words and in actions and in attitudes in ways that are perceivable. And so we're going to look at that, and then this first little passage. James wants you to understand faith as a way of seeing things, as a kind of perception, and that sets the stage for so much else that he says. He starts, James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is telling people, the people of God who are scattered among the nations, who are routinely bumping up into the rude reality that they are not in their homeland, and we as eavesdroppers, knowing that we are not yet with our God, and in many ways are scattered ourselves, hear him, telling us a way to think about our troubles, how to consider, how to interpret The maladies that come into our lives, they barge in unbidden and they rudely wipe their feet on our new carpet. And he tells us how to think about that. Mary Carr, the crazy and alluring poet, 
who was once suicidal and depressive and alcoholic and became a Christian. Walked back into her faith. That doesn't mean all these things go away, but she has a new way of reckoning with them. And she says this in her state of being most suicidal and most depressive. That a person in that state, that their mind is the keenest threat to their survival. That the way they're thinking is the keenest threat to their survival. Their mind is the one that's telling them things. A depressed person, and some of you know this very intimately, you don't even know you're depressed, but you'll know when you hear this. You hear things in your head, voices of condemnation and of berating that seem so very real. They're an inescapable feeling reality that if it were happening in real life and someone were standing outside of you and they were shouting at you, you're awful, you haven't done enough, you're terrible, you're worthless, that if you were listening to somebody do that, you would put your fingers in your ear like a small child and go, na 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 I can't hear you. And you would resist it. You would think, they're crazy, I need to get away, but it's in your own head, so you think it's real. You think those are true messages. Well, you don't have to be depressed or suicidal to know or to have it be the case that your mind is the keenest threat to your own survival. Because James recognizes that we're all pretty terrible interpreters. And you don't need James to tell you. You can look at it yourself if you have a tendency to catastrophize or overgeneralize. You assume the worst about things. Your head starts to hurt, and in 30 seconds, you've got an aneurysm, and your children are orphaned, and they probably hated you because your head hurts. Someone doesn't call you back, and it's because you're going to be fired, and they hate you, and they're going to burn down your house. You are not generally the best interpreter of what is going on, and we preference so much the things that just occur to our minds. It takes some effort. It takes some labor. It takes some wisdom. It takes some experience. And it takes some light being shown in from the outside. And that's why James starts this by saying to people who are perhaps having their property confiscated and their rights in court terminated. They may be dealing with arthritic knees and wayward children. They may be worried about the weather and crops that aren't growing. They are fragile. And they're at the mercy of things that they can't control. And it's easy to imagine maybe God's against us. Maybe God's no good. Maybe the God who has promised us life is really the author of evil or the author of death. Or maybe he's fallen asleep. And James says... Don't let your mind be the keenest threat to your own survival. Let me tell you how to think of it when trouble, circumstance comes crashing through your walls like a train. Consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because these trials are there to cross-train, to resistance-train your faith. 
Now, James, I don't think, is giving you pastoral advice so that someone walks up to you and says, you know, I'm struggling. I have severe anxiety and constant migraines. Don't say, woohoo! Praise the Lord, brother. Pure joy. Let's go have an ice cream. Don't say that. That's not what he's telling you to do. This is a way for us to understand, to perceive the maladies that are going on in our lives that are meant for our maturity. They're a way for us to have a self-talk with ourselves. You know, later on, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. He's giving you, in a number of different ways, things to say to yourself. Ways of instructing yourself. Ways of taking the little cramped room of your mind, which seems to be the ultimate reality, where there's no light getting in and there's no circulating air. And he's saying, let me remind you, there's a window over there. Pull the blinds on it. Pull the shades. Open up the window. Let in some air. Let in some light. Let yourself remember. Let your eyes perceive. Let your heart grasp that there's way more going on than what you are experiencing in the shrinking suffering of your life. Suffering shrinks you down. So all you can experience is is the pain of it. And he's giving you a way to fight to see more. Trouble resistance trains your trust. That's what James is saying. All of you, in so many different ways, do hard things. Not because you love the hard things, but because you want the benefit of the hard thing. You've heard me mock before the people who carry fire hydrants and refrigerators on their back on Main Street. They're not insane. They haven't stolen anything. They're doing CrossFit. (laughs) Why would they do this? Why would you do 700 burpees in a row? Not so you'd wind up in traction. Not so you'd have a coronary infarction right there on the spot, but so that you might become a vigorous person full of functional strength and flexibility so you can attack your life every day with your CrossFit buds. Why would you put yourself through graduate school or any school or any training for any job and be so severely underpaid? Well, you put yourself through these trainings... You submit yourself to these deprivations in hopes that you'll become something different as a result of them. And God employs this method. The scriptures have myriad voices that are harmonic in agreement. That this is how God does it. That he builds maturity through what we suffer. That resistance trains our faith so that we can become who we're supposed to. And so he gives you something to say to yourself, I must need in some way this malady that has come into my life because it's there. And God wants me mature and complete. The things I think I lack, God may continue to let me lack because there's immaturity that he needs to still address. Trouble resistance trains your trust so that you may be mature, so that you may be complete, not lacking in anything. God wants you whole. 
And he knows the best method, and it never accords with our methods, which are to be left unbothered, and to be able to eat without consequence, and to watch as many Netflix shows in a row as you can stand. (laughs) James would also have you understand, too, that this saying that you may have heard, I think Leia Koka said it, that people... Don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. It's a good little adage, you can take it and use it and say you said it. People don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. And I think you understand this notion, you've been to school, some of you, and though you liked it when you had a professor who said, I would like you to read these 3,000 pages, and then subtext, and we shall never speak of them again. There will be no grade, there will be no consequence. There will be three neurotic students in there who will read the pages and be miserable. All the rest will think that teacher is phenomenal because they didn't have to do anything. They didn't do what you expected, but you've all had teachers and loved them for it who gave you these, we'll call them shame quizzes. You come into class, all right, Take out a piece of paper, and they'll ask you three questions. These three questions are not hard. They're just meant to shame you, or else to inspect you. If you did the reading, you'll get them right. If you didn't get the reading, you'll be naked in front of everyone. (laughs) They didn't do it. We do what we are inspected about. And James, when he reminds us of the value of trial, of trouble, of malady, of affliction, of aggravation, of the things in our lives that we don't want to be there, or the things we wish were there that aren't. He would remind us that these troubles, they inspect our trust. They're not just an expectation from God like, hey, have confidence in me. It's a constant inspection that trouble like nothing else Unwanted circumstance, like nothing else, forces you into a self-introduction. It holds up a mirror to you and says, look and see what are you most confident about. Where is your hope? What is your trust? Who are you looking to give you life, to make you something? And training, inspecting this trust comes from trouble. It's a quiz, And so, he gives you a couple of test cases. For instance, he says, the brother, in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who's rich, he ought to take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the plant, and its blossom falls, and its beauty fades. And so... In like manner, the rich man will fade away even while going about his business. When trouble comes into your life, it, when it comes to poverty, and you think of poverty as having not enough of something that you need, not enough choices, not enough relationship, not enough rightness with yourself or with others or with your money, and it would be easy 
to assume in a situation like that that you are only in deficit and you could be fixed if you just got more money or if you just got more clout, if you just had more social prestige, if you could win something or be promoted, that somehow you'd be something. And James says, if you're in humble circumstances, boast in it. Boast in that high position. He's giving us a way to think again. He's saying, change your perception. Tell yourself something other than what you're inclined to think and realize, what am I really trusting? And what you'll find out, he says it later, aren't the poor of the earth the ones that God has chosen to make rich in faith? Ah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, hum- is the kingdom of God. That God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. There is this recognition when you open up the window and let the air and the light in to see what you really trust, that when things aren't going your way, when they're not as you wish them to be, you can take some kind of delight in it. Like Paul's saying, therefore, I boast in weakness. I delight in insult, hardship, persecution, trouble, trial, and ingrown toenails. He, did, he, he meant to say that. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. I pray a lot. You know why? Holiness. I'm the most righteous man in here. Without doubt. Thank you, children, for laughing. I'm not even close to the holiest righteousness any, of any of you. You know why I pray a lot? Because I don't know what to do. Because I'm scared a lot. Because I'm confused a lot. Because I don't know how to proceed. So there's a part of me that takes delight in that. I hate 982 things about myself approximately. But almost all of those become an occasion for me to boast in my high position because they make me dependent like your things make you dependent on a God that I probably wouldn't bother with if they weren't all there. But as it is, I can't give up on him because I've got no place else to go because I'm a wreck inside of here. That's why I just screwed at you. I've got no place else to go. These things happen so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So trouble can inspect your faith and say, what am I, am I trusting in? And, and, if, and if you are a person where things are going well and you've got a lot of resources, he would say, you should boast in your low position. In other words, be grateful for what's been handed to you, but don't you dare trust what's been handed to you. Because your life, though it's easy to forget this, your life as a rich person, and that applies to everybody in here in a way, is as fragile as Queen Anne's lace getting run over by a bushhawk. Your life is a withering plant that cannot withstand the summer heat. The Bible is replete with these kind of warnings. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. All men are like grass. Moses says our lives 70, 80 years, and they're but 
filled with sorrow and trouble, and we end our years with a a groan. For those who might be tempted to say, I just need more money. I just need more clout. Or I've got what I am looking forward to now. He would say, remember your own fragility. Steve Jobs, who is arguably the most important person in the world, certainly in this room, because none of you can do anything without his permission, right? If Apple says you can't do it, you can't do it, right? Don't you have to have Apple's permission to do anything? And Steve Jobs was worth at least seven or eight or nine dollars, And he said this in a Stanford graduation speech, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make big choices in my life. Almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear, all embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what's truly important. Remembering you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking that you have something to lose. You're already naked. There is no reason, he says, not to follow your heart. I don't care about that conclusion, but I like the idea, because the Bible would support it, to say there's something wise about us saying we have to recognize we're in a treacherous position sometimes because we, we think if we have enough money that we'll be impervious to danger, but having billions of dollars can't, affect anything, apparently, about deadly pancreatic cancer. That the breath of life that's given by God is what determines our lives, and our lives are in many ways like grass. And if we know we're going to die, yet we trust Christ, and we know, therefore, we will live forever, then we don't have to be afraid. He's defanged death from us, and we can, we can act And all trouble can remind us, all loss can remind us from lost sunglasses to a lost set of keys to a lost bit of income that an eventual loss is coming to everyone. So we better not trust what we have, but in the one who gives and gives and gives. See, our trouble, resistance trains our trust and it inspects our trust, and shows us what we really believe. And it also shows us when it comes to this. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Trouble reminds us which crowns we're looking for, which glory, which approval, which applause, Butch Jones was not a well-loved man in Knoxville, Tennessee, or any of its proximate neighbors. He will enjoy the reputation of having had the worst coached football teams in the history of Tennessee football, which is, you know, pretty good. And he remarkably at one point said in ways that no one can forget and no one stops talking about like so now here two years after he's fired. He said after losing the SEC East Championship that was handed to them 
like a gift from God on a platter, and he figured out a way for them to lose it and his players. They asked him about this, and he said, well, we have already, I told my players, we didn't win the SEC championship, but we have already won the championship of life. And people were, were so moved to laughter and mockery. Because even people who hate sports realize that's not a real thing. You just made up something. You just offer everybody a fake consolation. You can't confer championships of life on yourself. I'm sorry. And yet we do it all the time. Butch Jones had the misfortune of saying that out loud in public. If he had said it at home to his wife, his wife would be like, Butch, uh uh-uh. Like, just say those things here, sweetie. Don't say that out loud. She's from the Midwest. She wouldn't have had that accent. But we confer crowns on ourselves all the time. Titles, value. I am something. We boast in things. What we have, what we do, what we've accomplished. And James wants to say, if you can persevere in your trials, you're going to get that crown that you really, really want. This crown of life, that's what you're looking for. This, this glory, this praise from God himself who has called you to life through his word of truth that you might be a kind of pilot project, a first fruits of all he created, a renewed people on a planet that he's fixing to refurbish magnificently. You can't confer honor on yourself but you can receive it. And trouble, as it inspects your trust, will help you see, where am I looking for that? And you'll hopefully come back and realize, I need the God who gives life to crown me. No one else can do it. These things are hard. They're hard to grab hold of. They're hard to remember. They're hard to hold as true. And so it's interesting that James says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, because this is hard to have these kinds of right perceptions. If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously, boundlessly, without recrimination, without fault, without inspection, to them that ask, and they will receive it. But when you ask, you must You must believe and not doubt, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. I was told by CCS's Leslie Nope that I should read. That's what they called Jess Felty at CCS, the Leslie Nope of CCS. So there you go. This is what I've heard. But... If you embarrass people at church, they always come back. That's my... It's a compliment. I like Leslie Nope. She told me I needed to read this book called Peace Like a River. And in it, at the beginning, this, this boy is recounting his birth where his lungs were swampy and his prognosis looked grim and he couldn't breathe. And his dad was out praying as his mother was screaming and his dad felt compelled to run into the delivery room. I heard from God, he said, that I should be there. Not an audible voice, but I just knew. And he said, I was running before I knew it. And I came into the room and 
And this baby, for 12 minutes or so, had not breathed. And the, the doctor, Dr. Nukes, who was a reasonable man, said there would be brain damage now. His lungs can't fill. But the dad leaned in and, and held him and covered him with a coat and was massaging his body to bring warmth back into it. And Dr. Nokes, the doctor, said, sometimes there's just something unworkable in one of the organs, a ventricle that won't pump correctly, a liver that poisons the blood. He was a kindly and reasonable man, lungs that can't expand to take in the air. And he said, in these cases, we must trust the Almighty to do what is best. At which dad stepped across and smote Dr. Noakes with a right hand. I do not recommend this kind of care for doctors. He smote Dr. Noakes with the right hand, so the doctor went down and lay on his side with his pupils unfocused. He knocked him out. As mother cried out, dad turned back to me, a clay child wrapped in a canvas coat, and said in a normal voice, Reuben Land, in the name of the living God, I command you, Breathe. The boy is telling the story. I haven't read it yet, so I just just started. In the name of the living God, I command you, breathe. God has made you alive in Christ. He wants to see you through to receive a crown of life. He wants to give you perseverance. And if you need help, he wants you to pray like a dad that's got no time for maxims without depth. Who knocks out the doctor and says, I am clamoring for the wisdom of God and I will not waver in my expectation because he's promised he doesn't promise to heal all babies or all people. He has promised to give generously to anybody who wants the godly skill of wisdom to perceive a right so that you can consider it pure joy when you're faced with trials of many kinds. I hope you'll have a faith that lives and a prayer life that fights for the living God who tells people to breathe and keeps them breathing so that you are not held hostage by your own mind. Let's pray. If you'll turn to your bulletins, there's a prayer of confession somewhere. Page three. O Lord, hear us as we pray together, gracious God. Our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name. And what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Take a moment to silently offer your sins to God.